let's uh, let's get started with a word of prayer, and then we'll get into class. Dear God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the many blessings you give us, and we thank you for the freedom and the opportunity we have to come here and to study your word and to worship you, Lord. And we just ask that you bless us as we as we do this, and that it's something that's meaningful and, and uplifting to you, Lord. And I just ask that you allow us to take what we learn today in the class and what we've learned in worship and take it out and use it to to bring others to you and it's in christ let me pray amen all right well i i'm glad to be back uh, last weekend from friday morning till sunday evening i had a total of about six hours of sleep so uh i actually we uh we did a huge migration at work uh, systems migration probably one of the largest ones we've ever done and everything was going smooth until four o'clock sunday morning and they called me and uh and i had to i was actually working from the house and we got done right at about eight forty-five, and i was still going to come in but i was going on about two hours of sleep and i told helen i said i i, I don't want to get up here and do this and look like a zombie doing it so i appreciate dad for filling in for me and I'm glad. Uh, hopefully, we don't have to do that or go through that for a while. So, just to review for a little bit, uh, we've kind of gone through the old. We went through the Old Testament. We've we, we're we're going through um, the New Testament, and we're we're up to the point of where last uh, or two weeks ago we talked about Christ's new commandments. We, we talked about the greatest commandments and then the new commandments that He uh, established which was to love one another as he had loved us, or he loved them uh, when he was talking to the apostles at the time, but to love one another as Christ has loved us, which at the time they didn't quite understand until he went and died on the cross for them. So we were at that point where Christ has been crucified, and now he's raised from the dead. But we're going to continue, and I want to, you know, like for those who haven't been here the series, we, we've titled it New. But if we look in Revelation 21, 5, it says, And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for the words, these words are faithful and true. And so now we're going to start getting into the ecclesia in action. And this is the church in action. So at this point, Christ is still on earth. He's resurrected. And he's going around and, and making himself known and visible uh, to the to the apostles and, and the, his group of followers. So if we catch up, in, and this is getting toward the, the ascension, if we look in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, he gives one final command before he leaves. And he says, And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And then Mark, Mark recorded something similar in Mark 16, 15, and 16. We're familiar with these verses. And he said to them, Go into all the world <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> and preach the gospel to all creation. He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. But what's interesting here, <laughs> Even after all this, the death, the burial, the resurrection, and now he's back. 
they still didn't get it. They still really didn't understand what was going on. And we see that in, in, in the first chapter of Acts, verse 6. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? They still, at this point, thought that he was going to establish his physical kingdom there in Israel and rule from there. That's what they thought was, was going to happen. And he basically says, no. He says, but I'm going to send you someone shortly, the Holy Spirit, to guide you. So what did the apostles do? After Jesus ascended, they're staring up in heaven. An angel comes to them and said, hey, why are you staring up in heaven? Christ is going to come back the same way he just left. What did the apostles and, and his followers do? Anyone remember? They went home. I think sometimes we, we, we think and we just assume that they went and well, they just immediately went straight to their mission. No, actually, they, they didn't. If you look in Acts 1.13, it says, When they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, that is, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. So here they cast lots. They're, they're up in the upper room. They cast lots uh, to decide who's going to be the next apostle because obviously they've got to replace Judas since he hung himself and betrayed Jesus. So this is about 40 days after the, or after, I'm sorry, after the resurrection. And then we get to the day of Pentecost, which is 10 days after the ascension. So it's 10 days later. This is 50 days after the resurrection, so it's been a, almost two months, a month and a half. And they're still hanging out in the upper rooms, kind of to themselves. So they, they really haven't followed through on what Jesus told them to go and do. So Jesus sent some help, which he said he was going to do. And this is where we get to the day of Pentecost. And this is in Acts 2, verses 1 through 4. When the day of Pentecost had come, and like I said, this is 10 days after Christ had ascended, they were all together in one place, so they were still together in a, in a room. And suddenly there came from a heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other, or other tongues, as the uh, or languages as the spirit was giving them utterance so this wasn't uh it caused quite a scene i mean you can imagine it was actually brought you and you as you read through acts 2 you see this it, it brought a large crowd i mean all of a sudden you hear this loud just rushing wind i mean i'm sure it made a shaking and a it wasn't it was something that didn't go unnoticed you know in in the area and so there's this, a large group gathers to see. I mean, like anyone, if we saw a huge, massive gust of wind come down or, and it made a large, just huge sound and there was a bunch of people around, human nature, we're all going to flock to that to see what it was. And that's what happens here. And it's, and it's such a large crowd, and the, and the apostles and, and, the, and the disciples here, they start talking to this crowd, and everyone there can understand what everyone's saying. And so a lot of people will interpret this as, well, they just started speaking a foreign language. 
Actually, if you, if you look at how this worked, they would speak English or whatever they were speaking at the time, Greek or whatever language they were speaking at the time. But it would be like me speaking English here and someone who only sp- spoke Spanish being in the crowd and understanding exactly what I was saying. That was how the, spe- the, the tongues, um, speaking in tongues worked here. And this is a, a list of all the people who were there from different countries and all who understood. And a lot of the people that were there were amazed, but there was a, a good-sized crowd of them that, were, that said, man, these guys are drunk. They've had too much sweet wine, is what, if you look in Acts 2.13. He says, but others were mocking and saying they are full of sweet wine. Now, I say all this to go back to, and, and we're going to dive into a little bit more uh, later on, but if we look at this, because then, then it goes into uh, Peter's sermon, and Peter says, no, they're not drunk, it's 9 a.m. No one drinks this early. But anyway, um, and, then, and then Peter goes into his sermon. So what I want us to look at and focus on here is, is the change in Peter in a matter of about 53 days, 54 days maybe. It wasn't a little less than two months before then that Peter was denying Christ, said he didn't know him, and, and pretty much almost cursed him. And now we see Peter stand up and give one of the, the better sermons in the Bible to, to the, the people that are there. What changed in Peter in those 50-some days? He received the Holy Spirit. I think that is something that we do not use to our full potential. I think we, how do I say this? We downplay the power of the Holy Spirit. We limit it. Um, because it is a supernatural thing, right? And the supernatural sometimes is, you know, and, and we also don't want to get into the craziness that, uh, I'll call it craziness sometimes, of what we see of people claiming to be full of the Holy Spirit as well, right? You know, the, the chaos and the, the, the just craziness, you know, running around, flopping on the floor, that kind of stuff. That's not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gives us the ability and the power to do things that by ourselves we could not do. Now, I'm not talking about healing people. We, we, we can go into a study of that. We can, you know, the miraculous gifts of the, the Holy Spirit were just for those particular people at that particular time. But it still doesn't mean that we cannot still have miracles. And when I say miracles, I'm not talking about me going in. Well, I don't know. I don't know. Christ says if you have faith of a mountain or faith of a mustard seed, you can move a mountain. So I'm not going to downplay it. But my point here is, is, is we do not rely on the Holy Spirit as much as we should. God, you know, we, I feel like we tend to say, well, the Holy Spirit is what is the Word of God, that, or, or basically the Holy Spirit gave us the Word of God, and that's kind of what we use, but, but the actual receiving of the Holy Spirit and using it as a powerful tool to do things 
and to bring people to Christ and to spread God's message, I don't think we use it to its full potential. Yeah, we are. We we're, we're and and that's where we're going. We're 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 going here. We are. We're we're afraid of being considered. I think radical, fanatics, crazy, drunks. You know, and, and I, again, I'm not talking about going out and and doing and doing crazy things and pretending to heal people. What what I'm talking about is asking God to use the Holy Spirit to work into uh, through us to do things that normally as a human being we cannot do. And that, and that includes um, things that we're not comfortable with, things that are way out of our comfort zone. I'll give you an example for myself, and I've, I feel I'm not perfect in this situation, but one of the things that I chose to do, and I asked God to, to use the Holy Spirit to try to work through me is what I'm doing right here. A year and a half ago, you would not have drugged me up here to stand in front of people. And now through, you know, it didn't just come on top of me and all of a sudden I can get up here and speak to you. It's work, right? But it's, I believe that when I study and when I do things and when I get up here and speak, you know, I ask for God's guidance, and I feel that he uses the Holy Spirit to do that kind of stuff. And, and I think we, there's a lot more of that that we just, we can tap into that we, we haven't. Sometimes I think we want to we, we do it on our own, and we want to do it ourselves. Yep. No, I... It does. Faith, yep. So, I wanted to make this point about Peter, because before, you know, 50 days ago, Peter, you know, was denying Christ, and now he stands up, and he's one of the most, one of the strongest proponents. And he gives this wonderful speech, and the only difference between that time is the the gift of the Holy Spirit. Not the only difference, but the main difference is the the gift of the Holy Spirit. But he gets down to, to verse 36. He gives them their whole history, and he tells them what they've done. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus who you crucified. So you've got a Lord. Here he was. You killed him. Now, when they had heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, and we're all familiar with this verse, Repent, each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, most people in here are familiar with Alexander Campbell, right? Okay. Alexander Campbell wrote his own version of the New Testament. It's called the Living Oracles. A lot of scholars have read it and said it is is very accurate and is actually a very good translation of the New Testament. And I liked how he translated these two verses. He said, Now when they had heard these things, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Reform, and each one of you be immersed 
in the name of Jesus Christ in order of the, to the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. I like the wording that he chose here. Repent. What, when we think repent a lot of times, what do we think? We think turn. But I think nowadays it tends to, the, the language around repent is more of a, I'm sorry. Okay, you know, I won't do that again. When I tell you that you need to reform, what's the, what, do, what do you think there? Change. And, and repent, again, the same thing. I, I just, and, and I think, you know, words, the meaning of words change a little bit after over, o, over time. And while, yes, we repent, we, we know, we, we can study, and it, we know that it means to turn, turn and, and to reform. Putting reform in there, I think, just helps put a greater emphasis on that. And so the one thing I wonder is how many of us have really reformed the way we live our lives? And then the second word I like there that he used is immersed, right? We believe in immersion baptism, and that and that's what was part of the reason why he translated it there. But the other way to translate immerse is to involve deeply and to absorb. And so I wonder how many of us have actually immersed ourselves into Jesus Christ. What are some things that you can think of that you have immersed yourself into? Sports? Caregiving? Yeah, that's a good one. But how many of us in here could, can claim that we have immersed ourselves into Jesus and truly immersed ourselves into Jesus? Think about that. Keep that in the back of your mind. I, I just, that was a side note that I, that I put in there. I like the way that, that was translated because that, you know, we, we, we repent, be baptized. Okay, you know, that, that means I need to say I'm sorry and kind of dip myself in the water. But if I say you need to reform and immerse yourself into Jesus Christ, that takes on a little bit different meaning. So he says that in 3,000 people in one day, commit themselves to Christ and are baptized. Again, they did not do this on their own. This was done through the power of the Holy Spirit. I mean, they really, it really had to be through the Holy Spirit, especially at this time, because they weren't even established. No one really knew who they were. Basically, Peter gets up. I mean, they knew who they were. They knew of the followers. But, I mean, he gets something's like, you did this, you did this, and now you need to do this, and they all did it. Well, not all of them, but a good portion of them did. 3,000 did. And then we'll see more and more. But a lot of times we stop right here. We go through the process. Yeah, we're able to get someone baptized. And then bring them up out of the water. And a lot of times, as Dad used to call it, you just kind of leave them on the steps of the, the baptistry and, and go on. And, and I think we've kind of done this ourselves, too. From a, from a Christian standpoint, because we have these things down, right? I'm going to go back and forth. It is six, isn't it? It's five steps and then the sixth one, sorry. <laughs> uh, 
that last one I threw in there and meant to put a question mark. You'll see why in a minute. And I'm not saying this stuff's not important, right? But we've, this is a, a big focus of our beliefs. But there's a couple things I think that we've either skipped or we have failed to really think through. Because we'll argue, and we'll, I say argue, we'll debate baptism until we're blue in the face, right? We'll defend acapella music until we're blue in the face. And, and again, I'm not saying we, don't need, or we shouldn't have these things or th- that we're wrong. But what I'm saying is communion, we will aggressively defend and preach these things. But I think we've, we skip some things that I think we should be just as adamant and just as passionate about. Here's two of them. What's the cost of all this? And what does that faithful till death at the end, step six, really mean? <laughs> so what does that look like? What does being a Christian or a disciple in the church of Christ truly look like? Huh? A servant? Yep. So let's dive into, this is where, after the 3,000 are baptized, this is where the assembly or the movement of Christ really starts. This is where it takes off. And if we see that starting in the next, cha- in the next couple of verses, all the believers were devoted or all the believers, I'm sorry, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. So, let's look at this first word here. Devoted. Zealous in attachment, loyalty, or affection. Now, I think a lot of us are devoted to a lot of things. What are some things we're devoted to? Marriage? Children? Grandchildren? So family? Work? Country? Presidents? I would say no. Religion should not be first. I'll say religion should not be first. You'll know where I'm going. (laughs) I I know what you meant. I know what you meant. Our relationship with Christ should be what we're devoted to. We're devoted to our football teams, right? How do I know who's devoted to the Georgia Bulldogs in here? <laughs> oh, that's a good one. <laughs> so, so if I were to ask, are we zealous or devoted to Christ? What would you say? 
<laughs> in the beginning, yeah. I think a lot of us think we are. And I'll get to why we, we think that we are. All right, so the second word there was they were in deep awe. An overwhelming feeling of reverence, admiration, fear, produced by that which is grand, sublime, extremely powerful. How many times when you're in the presence of either here in worship or just in the presence of God, you know, praying, whatever, how many times when you get together with other Christians are you in deep awe? Yeah. I mean, how many people, yeah, that's a good one. When you, when you look at the Grand Canyon, when you look at some of the creation, you, you can be in deep awe. But how many of you have that same feeling every time you walk into this building? Or you're, you're praying? <laughs> Sometimes. So my question is, is, is this us? We're two verses into the New Testament church. So let's go back and look at that first one. The cost of being new. And we're going to go back and revisit some of the things that we talked about devoted, being devoted to. What did Jesus say the cost of being new was? Huh? What did, what did Jesus say that the cost of being new or being a disciple was? Huh? World of haters? Denying yourself. So we're going to go through, basically just go through the Luke from the beginning to the end real quick and look at what Jesus said or asked those who are going to be his disciples to do. Luke 5, 10, and 11. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, and who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not fear, from now on you will be catching men when they had... Uh, had brought their boats to land. They left everything and followed him. They left their livelihood on the side of the banks and followed Christ. Luke five twenty seven and 28. And after that, he went and noticed a tax collector named Levi sitting in the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up, he left everything behind and began to follow him. All right, so we're a little bit into Luke. And this is just him establishing his, uh, his apostles. Luke 9, 57 and 58, And they were going along the road. Some, to, some said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Okay, so you, you would think Christ would be trying to encourage these people to follow him, right? Next couple, the next verses. And he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But he said to them, allow the dead to bury their own. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Well, there goes our devotion to our families, right? And also another said, I will follow you. But first, permit me to say goodbye to those at home. Assuming this is his family. But Jesus said to him, No one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Luke fourteen twenty six. If anyone comes to me and does not hate 
The actual translation here is loveless. His own father and mother and wife and children and brother and sister, yes, even his own life, he cannot be not my disciple. Now, we will vehemently talk about how in order to be a Christian, you have to be baptized, right? Nothing, I'm not going to argue against that. It says it right there in the Bible. But how many times do we include this when we're talking to someone about becoming a disciple? Yep. And then this is where this... But, but, but do we really, but, and, this is where, and this is where I'm going, in American Christianity, do we really pay a price for being a Christian? Have any of us really had to pay a price for being a Christian? In this verse here, Jesus himself is saying, if you do not love your family and yourself less than me, or less than, yeah, me, you can't be my disciple. There you go. I, I, I'm hoping you're following me. Yep. So let's go to the next one. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So basically he is saying, unless you are willing to carry an instrument of torture and death and be ready for that, you cannot be my disciple. How many of us in here are really ready for that? Luke 14, 33, the last one. So then, no one can be my disciple who does not give up all his possessions. Now, we know that this does not mean that we go out and just give up everything and, and give it to someone. Although a lot of Christians in the early church did that. Yep. So basically, in summary, Jesus says, in order to be my disciple, you have to abandon your comforts, be willing to abandon your career, your possessions, your family, and yourself. And put him first. This is kind of where we're at today. I feel like, as, a, as American Christianity. We've kind of turned it into the middle class American Jesus, right? He's okay with materialism. Wouldn't really ask us to give up everything we have. You know, God, he, he wants us to be comfortable. He wants us to be happy. Wouldn't really ex expect us to forsake our relationships for him. Fine with minimal devotion, right? As long as, what well, Troy said, you know, as long as we're here three days a week, we, we act okay outside of the church building, we're good. Really wouldn't want us to be uncomfortable put ourselves in danger. Right? What are your thoughts?
Why not? No, I'm not, I'm not, yeah. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And go ahead. Correcting some of that towards the apostles, some of that. Because you read strong on in Scripture about live quiet lives, be diligent, work like you're working for Jesus. Yep. You know, he doesn't tell everybody to quit doing everything and give up everything, but you have to devote your life to Christ. And so, yes. When I became a Christian, I left a lot of my old friends behind because what I saw Jesus wanted me to be and what I was was not the same thing. So you yes. do sacrifice. It's not painful sacrifices, as in physical pain, but you do sacrifices for Christ. Yeah. No. I mean, it's not. It's not like physical pain. It's not like I'm out there getting tortured or burned at the stake or anything like that. But there are some things you do that that do have a cost. Did Jesus say also say that many of you, many are called, but few are chosen? Did he say that? Yeah. And that was it. Was it uh, several times he said that? Many are called, few are chosen. So you know, just because you think you're chosen, you better look at your own life. So I was hoping you guys. Excuse me. What are we actually giving up? Because I mean. We wouldn't have nothing for the begin with if he hadn't given it to us. <laughs> so this is where I, this is where I'm going to on this. All right, I'm not saying that we need to tomorrow go and quit our jobs and sell everything we have and come and put it here in the church building, right? And, and then go out trying. What? Yeah, leave our families. What I'm saying, what what Christ is saying here, and and, and kind of hit it on it. We need to be willing to do that. And that's where I'm getting to, is as I don't know if we're even to the point of where we're willing to do that. Yeah. When the those that are living at that time, they quit their jobs and went up on the mountain because they thought Jesus was coming back. And <laughs> yep. That kind of, yep. We wouldn't do that. No, no, we wouldn't. And, and, and Christ would not expect us to do that, right? But this, this is the, the thing is, is he wants us to be willing to. He wants us to sacrifice and be willing to realize that everything is his. Right? We are his. Our family is his. Everything in our lives and around our lives that we have or we own or we've earned or whatever is his and because of him. But let's look at a couple verses later and see what the church started doing. And all those who have believed were together and had all things in common, and they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. <clears throat> now we're about four or five verses into the new church. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonged to him as his own, but all things were common property to them. That is. If we were to do this, people would think we were a cult. Them people are crazy. They just started selling and sharing everything and loving one another and making sure that everyone was okay and 
was, you know, no one was in need. It actually never says that no one was richer than everyone else. They, they made sure that there was no one in need. And with great powers, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord and to the abundance of grace upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring those proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. And then it even goes a little more detail. And then I, this is why I think this is important, because they put this small detail in here, or the Christ did, or God did. Now Joseph a Levite of Superior Burr, I don't know how you say that, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means sons of encouragement, and who owned a tract of land, sold it and brought it, the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. Sounds a little bit. But here's the thing. This was all, they chose to do this, right? This wasn't all of you who have anything extra land need to sell it and come bring it into the church building. They lived out the love one another as I have loved you. This is why they grew. They saw, they were a community of people living in a time where there was a lot of hardship, a lot of poor, and they did everything they could to make sure that everyone who was a part of their community who were Christians didn't go in need or didn't go hungry if they were in need, they were, they, were, they were taken care of. They were loved. To the point where it seemed like no one really owned their own things because they were willing to share it at whatever it w they needed to do to help someone else out. But why is the government taking that over for the church? We're going to dive into a little bit more of what the church did in this day. Government. Yeah. Satan's always had the government. The situation the government was also a part of what was going on. Those names and places you listed up there, uh, for those who might not know, those people were homeless. Yep. Uh, not only were they homeless, they were seeking after something that they just had read about heard about from the Old Testament, so here they are in a situation and in a place where they don't have nothing, and all of a sudden they hear about this guy named Jesus, but that has been part of a movement that's going on. Yeah. They had a government at this time, especially in a very short amount of time, that was going to start killing them. Our government's evil, it hasn't started doing that yet. No, no. You know, no. And I'm just telling you, uh, people putting their faith and hope and all this government, and it may have been good to them, for, so to speak, for the immediate thing, but in the long term, it's going to drop the hammer, yeah. you know, just like when, when the Lord comes back, but it's going to be too late then when the Lord comes back to drop that hammer. 
you think about it, think about the number of churches in, in the United States. Now, we're still losing, I think, to all total, about six to 10,000 churches a year in the, in the United States. But you think of all the ones who are still out there. And if every single one of them, I mean, what, you've probably got 100 in Lowndes County alone. If every single one of them <coughs> just did the first five verses of, X, of, the, of the start of the church, maybe six or seven, what would that look like? <laughs> what, what would, why do you think they grew the way they did? Because this is what they look like. If we look half of this, we'd explode. Because people would see a true, genuine movement. And this is why when I talk about the, the church and, and what, we've, what we've, and I, not just us, okay, the Christianism in, in general. We've made it more about our buildings and our ourselves. We've, there's been a huge inward turn into the church across the board. Now, that's starting to, that's starting to change. We're starting to see some of that. But nothing like this. It has. And, and we've almost made it to where, unless you can really get yourself in line close to our good people values, it's like, well, then we'll, then we'll, you gotta, you gotta get in line first, then we'll bring you in, right? And we, and so, and I know some of y'all know I've already covered a lot of this stuff as we were going through it. But like I said, I was going to wrap it up into one single long line. Are we willing to do the first six or seven, eight verses of what the New Testament church was? Like I said, if we're going to call ourselves the Church of Christ and we're going to say we're the New Testament church, do we look like the New Testament church? And I don't, I don't say that to be mean. I don't say that to put down the church. That's not my point. My point is if we're going to say we're something... Sorry, Amber. Go. If we're going to say we're something, then we need to kind of look like it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I, honestly, the best thing that can happen in America for the churches is for the government to come down on them. That would be the best thing to happen. People are like, oh, no, you shouldn't say that. That's the truth. Look at China. Look at the places. Persecution makes you stronger, right? <laughs> but, but, but Amber said something. that If we tap in to the Holy Spirit and the Word of God and our relationship with Christ, 
And we really, I, I think sometimes, you know, and I, I'll say this, and I, we, like to, we like to focus on the easy things. All right? It's easy to tell people that they need to do the five steps and, and be baptized and then live a faithful life. All right? We don't really cover the cost a whole lot when we're trying to convert someone. All right, we really don't, we don't, you know, it's like, well, you know, we, we, we don't want to scare them off, right? Christ didn't. Christ wanted, if someone was coming to him, he wasn't going to, he wasn't going to sugarcoat it. He said, if you're going to follow me, this is what you're going to have to do, or I don't want you following me. All right, so we'll stop there, and then we're going to move further into and look at a lot of the things that the church did all the way through Acts and then, and then further on.